Just before we get into this episode, I wanted to let you know that we had a bit of an issue with one of the mic stands. During this fantastic conversation, you might hear some knocking, which is when Paul taps his hand on the table. We are aware of this and we're going to sort it out for future episodes. Income tax at the moment is going up by the most it has ever gone up. And that's probably a £50 billion tax rise. Now, that's one of the biggest tax rises in history. Paul Johnson is the director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies, the IFS. They're an independent research body who, among other things, look at how the government gets its money, like tax, and how they spend it. He's written a book called Follow the Money, How Much Does Britain Cost? It lays out exactly what the government does with our hard-earned cash and why it's going to need a lot more of it in the future. If you're like me, you'd have heard that and gone, I pay enough tax. Well, Paul's book really gave me a different perspective and I wanted to give you guys a chance to hear his arguments too. The population is getting older. Second thing, of course, is climate change. There's a dirty little secret in Whitehall, which is that they know how to do it and don't. We need to get the economy growing and there are things that we can do to do that. But actually, that's going to take not just politicians to be brave, that's also going to take us to be brave. I found the book a hard read, honestly, in a sense of it challenged my internal narratives around taxation. <laughs> what I mean by that is the book is about taxation, how we spend money or how the government spends money in the UK. And really this underlying message of we're probably all going to need to pay more tax in the future. And I think that goes against my, everyone thinks they pay enough or they think they pay too much. That's what we want to explore today. The reasoning in there, because you convinced me wholeheartedly. Um, can we just start by getting an explanation of you of what you do at the IFS and kind of what the IFS do, please? Yeah, so we're, um, I'm, I'm glad that challenged you, but uh, yeah, we're, <laughs> we're a research organization. Yeah. We do work on what we think of as the economics of public policy. So that means looking at tax, welfare, pensions, health spending, education spending, local government finance, all those kinds of rather boring sounding things, but actually the things absolutely determine um, how we live, how government gets its money, how it spends its money. And we do all of that by you know, doing lots of research on huge data sets. I mean, my colleagues spend all of their time analysing vast data sets to try and get a, an objective sense of how things are changing, what the difference government policy makes to people, and so on. We're, we're, we're an educational charity, and we try to be as completely objective and independent as we can. How do you interact with the government then when you say independent? What does that mean? Well, it means we sort of talk to government and um, opposition. It means we say when we think things aren't working or that policies are not going to achieve the sorts of things that they want them to achieve. Um, when the numbers look to us a bit dodgy, we'll say so. But a lot of it, as I say, is doing our research and then putting that out into the world. We get quite a lot. We, 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 we're quite unusual and we get lots of stuff in really high level academic publications, journals and so on. But we also talk through people like you, the BBC, ITV uh, and the newspapers to try and put our put the information out into the world. So what we're trying to do is kind of bring those two together, bring the real academic rigor to the big public policy issues and get that into the in, in, into the public domain so people can make their own judgment about these things. We hear things from politicians and it, without any sense or context, it, it riles you up. When mm, I heard mm. you talk in the book or through the audio book and your words, it made sense. And, and, it, and it's a shame that we don't get that sort of communication. I was um, 
showing my partner the book as well. And she said it reminded her of around COVID when the doctors were speaking. And, you know, when they were talking around the policies around COVID and we brought out experts who stood there and said, mm -hmm. we need to do this because of this. She said she felt reassured by hearing the experts speak. And often she doesn't feel reassured by hearing politicians speak. If that makes sense. That completely makes sense. Yeah. I mean, of course, you know, experts can disagree and experts mm -hmm. can have their own sort of view of the world. But um, but we know that politicians are coming at it from a particular point of view. And they'll very often use, as, as you say, not put things in context. I mean, I mean this is not a political point, but uh, the most recent thing I can recall is that the um, Labour Party conference, for example, Rachel Reeves stood up and said, are we going to... Get a, use a billion pounds from our non-DOM tax to reduce, um, you know, to, to increase the number of um, appointments in the NHS. Now, a billion pounds in an NHS budget of 180 billion is almost neither here nor there. And the number of appointments she was talking about out of the hundreds of millions that happen across the NHS is also sort of neither here nor there. But it sounds good, a billion pounds yeah, and a million appointments. Like a but actually, one of the things I want to try and get across in that book is, you know, Numbers that sound big aren't always big, no. actually. If you're looking at the NHS, a billion pounds is a tiny number. I know, a billion here, a billion there, and so you're talking serious money, but... you know, Lunch the money for you, too. <laughs> <laughs> Pocket change. <laughs> but, you know, when, when, when we spend 180 billion, yeah. um, you know, a billion is obviously useful, but it's not game-changing. A billion for something like the justice system is a lot of money because that's a much smaller budget to start with. What did you think of the book too? I was about to say like the book kind of puts things into perspective. The beginning was talking about where tax started and initially we didn't have tax. And then because of the wars, um, mm. yeah, taxes started in war. Yeah. It started in war. And, and then, everyone <laughs> promised to get rid of it. Yeah. And then it was like, oh, they go away from it. At the beginning you said it was only for people earning over 200 pounds who got tax. And then after like the French war, tax was abolished, income tax was abolished, and then it came back again, and yep. then just slowly been creeping up over time. So is it just a cycle now? Do you think that it's just gonna continually increase? Well, it does, it has ratcheted up in sort of lumps over time. So as you say, I mean, we had the Napoleonic Wars quite yeah. a long time ago, and that's when inter uh, income tax was first introduced, and then taxes went up a lot again after the First World War, and then after the Second World War. And the thing that's really surprising, and the I sort of knew, but kind of really the, doing the book kind of lodged it in my head, is I haven't really changed much since the end of the Second World War until the last few years. So, What do you mean by that? Sorry, so we, we sort of, you know, if you, if you look at tax as a fraction of national income, so you take all the national income and how much of that goes in tax, that's been pretty steady for a long time, about a third of national income. And that's quite surprising, given that we're spending lots more on health and pensions and all those sorts of things than we were 50 years ago. And, and part the main part of the reason we've managed to get that trick out is that we basically massively cut defence spending. So, so, so we just so, spend less. We spent much, much less on defence and use that money to spend more on health and pensions and welfare and all those sorts of things, which broadly speaking, until very recently, has kept taxes as a fraction of national income pretty stable. But actually, they've jumped in the last four or five years um, by... Three or four percent national income, but by about hundred billion pounds. Now that is that quite, is a big. That's quite a big number. That's quite a big number. <laughs> quite a big number. Um, and you know, there's a reason for that, which is that uh, we're spending lots more on health. Um, there are more people over pension age, and we're spending more on pensions. We had a decade through the 2010s of really cutting spending hard on lots of other things, and there's not obviously you can do that much more. Economic growth has been rubbish. Um, and we're spending a vast amount of money on debt interest payments because we've got a very big debt. So put all of those things together and the government, and it doesn't want to, I mean, conservative governments don't want to raise tax, but it has basically been forced into really big tax rises over this parliament. How do we compare to our peers then? 
because you, you focus on that in the book, the OECD and mm-hmm. stuff. How, how do we stack up there? So if you compare us with most of Western Europe, even though we've got our highest tax level ever, it's still below most of Western Europe, and a long way below places like France and, and Scandinavia, but below you know Germany, the Netherlands, all those sorts of countries. Uh, they tend to have much more generous pension systems, especially, uh, but also quite often more generous welfare systems generally. So they, 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 they tax quite a lot more than we do. But as with many things, we're a bit in the middle. So we tax a bit more than, or rather more than, a lot of the English-speaking countries, Australia, America, Canada, and and quite a lot more than sort of emerging, or not really emerging, but um, uh, some of the Far Eastern countries like Singapore or, or, or China or, or, or what have you. So, so internationally, we're somewhere in the middle, but in Western European terms, actually, we've still got relatively low taxes. One of the quotes that you use in the book is that we can't have an American tax system is in low taxes and yep. you know European public services. Yeah, It feels, to me, I, before reading the book, I would have said we have high taxes and poor public services. That's, that's how it felt. Well, I think it's one of the problems at the moment is taxes are high by our historic standards, but mm. public services do feel poor. I mean, we've got massive waiting lists in the NHS, um, much more than we've had for 25 years, really, in terms of NHS waiting lists. Um, government's been cutting spending through the 2010. So it does feel like we've got higher taxes, we do have higher taxes than we've had, and public services are struggling, which is you know not a happy place to be in. And part of that is, I say, because we've had really poor economic growth. We're spending so much on debt interest, and we don't see any benefit from paying for debt interest. But if you look, you know, compare our public services with those in the US, actually, ours aren't too bad. No, <laughs> uh, but, uh, a lot better than the ones in the US, definitely. I always say that, people always say the NHS is like, it's not very good, that's a long waiting list, but at least we have an NHS and we have, it works just very slowly. So yeah. yeah. But when you need it, so I, I I recently needed the NHS and I was I was in a point where it was like A&E needed a brain scan and I waited 17 hours. Mm, and it's mm. like, I could have an internal bleed on the brain mm. here while I'm sat here. And I think it, they've cut the areas of society that you don't know they've been cut until you need them. And then it becomes very obvious. And my whole view of NHS funding and sorting it out shifted in one night because I basically yeah. came out of there going... I, you know, they're very good at fixing people that are clearly dying. If you if you might be dying, you, you wait a long time. And I don't think that, I think, you know, I want a system where I can yeah. walk in and get fixed quite quick. And it's missing all of its targets now yeah. in a way that, um, you know, it was getting worse in the years up to the pandemic, but post-pandemic, it's got much, much worse, despite the fact actually we're spending more and more on it. And, um, you know, bigger and bigger fraction of the total amount we spend is going on on the health service. And there's a bit of a mystery actually since, 2019, we're employing loads more doctors and nurses and spending much more. The actually isn't doing any more. And we don't really understand why that is. And that's why the waiting lists keep going up. So I want to I want to talk about waste in a second. And I would like to pin that point and come back to it because I think there's, you know, I think we can have an interesting conversation there. Before we, before we get to that, uh, you say in your book, Government needs to be brave and so do we. So I encourage people to listen to this with an open mind because that's what I had to do. Because like I said, I came into this going, I'm paying way too much tax. And (laughs) yeah, but you set out in the book, your logic of why we will need more tax going forwards because of problems that are on the horizon slash already here. Could you just outline what you think the the challenges are that face the country going forwards in terms of why we need more tax. Yeah, I mean, I should say, you know, there are always choices here. So we could decide to cut the health service or, you know, 
make people pay for their own sixth form or um, you know, dramatically cut pensions or, or what have you. So there are always choices. But if we're not going to make those sorts of choices, then there are, I think, two or three big things that are going to happen over the next 20 or 30 years, which are going to mean, even though we've got the highest taxes ever at the moment, I think they may well go up further. One is the population is getting older. And um, there are something there'll be something like a tripling in the fraction of people who are over the age of eighty, and a big increase in the number of people over age sixty-five, and that's expensive because those are the people who use the health service a lot, and of course pensions. they get paid pensions. Health service is much bigger actually than pensions, but both both of those and social care, so all of those things, and of course on average they pay less tax than people who are in work. So all of those things will have an upward um, pressure on spending and therefore on tax. Second thing, of course, is climate change. And you know, we're committed quite rightly to get to net zero by 2050. That's a big, you know, that, that's a big issue to get to net zero by 2050. We're all going to have to replace our gas boilers in our houses, for example. That's expensive. Um, and that's not the only thing by any means. And that's an extra, let's say, 20 billion a year of government spending, as well as a lot of private um, uh, spending. And over the last, so that's two things. And over the last decade, I say we've had record cuts in spending on social care, on local government spending, on spending on the police, on spending on the justice system. All of those things have had really big cuts. And at at most, I can't see more cuts coming there. And you can see the pressures everywhere for more spending. We've had to stop sending people to prison because they're full. We've had um, strikes by barristers because legal, legal aid is so uh, poor. We've um, spent. We, we we were spending no more per pupil in schools than we were 15 years ago. First time that's yeah. ever happened. So, so the pressures everywhere are up, and the you know the, the bit of public spending which until you know 15, 10, 10 years ago we could always squeeze, which is defence. Well, the government at least has promised to raise that for the first time you know in generations, um, and you can see why with yeah. uh, you know, what's going on in Ukraine and the problems in the Middle East and There's all no those case. sorts of things. Yeah. Uh, so, so put all of those things together, uh, then it seems to me unless we're willing to say, look, you know, we're going to really ration the NHS even more than we are, or we're going to means test access to the NHS, or we're going to um, you know, stop providing free school post-16. So all of the pressures seem to me to be upward. Yeah. And to counter that then, as a as an individual, as I go about my day, it feels like I get taxed on absolutely everything. Yep. Bar breathing, right? And <laughs> that will come. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Penny per breath. Um, so let's look at the roads as an example. I pay road tax, and then the roads are just a mess. There's potholes everywhere, and I know it's a, a simple a simple example, but it it just seems like a lot of money goes mm. into the system, and nothing is right. Mm. Is the waste? Are they just burning money or? Well, there's, I mean, there's certainly some waste. I mean, interesting what you say about road tax. Of course, petrol duty has been coming down year on year on year on year for the last 13 years. And as we move to electric cars, then petrol duty will go altogether. And that's yeah. more than 30 billion quid the government right. is going to lose. So that's a sort of by the by. Um, uh, but, you know, it, it, it's really hard in the whole public sphere to say, how much waste is there? 
we we've all seen that things could be more efficient. I mean, you go to you know, you, you, there's lots of inefficiencies in the NHS, um, partly because they haven't invested in decent computer systems and, and decent buildings and decent equipment over a long time, and that partly reflects the fact it, it always seems to be in an emergency. So the money for the long term stuff that might save money goes into you know the day to day stuff that just keeps you alive. Um, as, as you're saying in the short run, yeah. I mean, it, it, there has been waste in. Um, uh, bits. I mean, so so local government, for example, has had huge cuts um, after 2010. And I make I say this quote in in the, in the book. I mean, in about 2011 or 2012, I was talking to a chief executive at one of the big big local authorities, and he said to me, before 2010, quotes, we were pissing money against the wall, unquote. So so there were clearly, you know, in a sense, was too much money sloshing around at that point. But they've really, I mean, they've cut like one pound in five of their spending over the last 15 years, it's pretty hard to think that there's a lot of um, you know, waste in there, at least things they could easily change. But yeah, but right across the system, you know, there, there, are, there are ways that this could be done better. It's really, really hard sitting in Whitehall to then sort of you know, wave a wand or make a law which makes these things more efficient. That's really tough. So on that inefficiencies point, are there any... Areas that you can see that are obvious or quick wins that we could change. There's nothing. There's nothing big. There's not. There's nothing of a scale which would really help us um, sort out the kinds of problems that we're talking about. There have been mistakes for sure. I mean, we are part of the reason that the NHS doesn't work very well at the moment is we were not investing beforehand in the kinds of equipment and buildings and so on which would make it work better at the moment and indeed in in training the staff and you know, we, we know that that we we need better management in the NHS we know we need better IT infrastructure and so on but that's actually going to cost money up front if I look right across public sector is there a sort of 10 billion pound budget where I can see well we just don't need that it's obvious well no not really politics <laughs> there we go. Yeah, for the last few years just get rid of all of them let you run the country you and T yeah, just hash it out just hash it out you can be my chancellor yeah. <laughs> good god <laughs> do you think though that when they're making these laws or they're like creating new taxes that they actually think about the average person. So like, for example, you had, um, in your book, you mentioned there's there was window tax. So people, <laughs> if you had over seven windows, you got taxed. So they just boarded up some windows <laughs> yeah, yeah. and it was meant to go to the landlord, but then the landlord just increased yeah. the prices of the rent. So that it ended up going to the, the, yeah. the tenants. Yeah. And then there was brick tax. So people just made bigger bricks, yeah. which I thought was really smart. <laughs> that's, a, then, that's a you, man. That's, that's, that's what I do. Like, oh, so you're charging me per brick. How about this big, big brick? That's exactly what they did. That's yeah. what they did. Yeah. And then you said like, there was like coffee, for nail tax, beard tax. I like beard I would have been beard. hit with the beard tax. So, but then people just shave their beards or they just like got bigger bricks. So do you, do you think when they're making these laws and we're looking for like, where are we gonna get more tax, more money? It seems that there's always a loophole that people will try and like, naturally I don't want to pay as much. Everyone wants yeah. to pay less yeah. tax. Yeah. So do you think they think about it in practice or they just think this is a good idea. Let's have a coffin nail tax. Yeah, I, did. I, I mean, I, I think right across the piece, there isn't that sort of engagement with um, you know, real life and real people. I mean, in, in, in all sorts of ways. I mean, when you talk about how they change the NHS, they don't seem to engage with patients. I mean, we've all wasted 
huge amounts of our lives not waiting around in hospitals or if you've ever done jury duty it's basically spending two weeks waiting um, so there's no sort of sense of actually caring very much Valuing about people's time. people's time but on the tax side you're absolutely right I mean there are so many ways and I go through some of them in the book where it's just obvious today that there's kind of big signs up saying please avoid tax here it's uh, you know if you um, you'd think that saving at a pension you'd want to use your money for a pension but there's a huge inheritance tax loophole yeah. Which means that it's the easiest way of avoiding inheritance tax is to put money into a pension. That if you, um, you know, depending on, you know, the, the reason that companies like Uber and so on would love the drivers to be self-employed um, is because you pay a lot less tax if they're self-employed. If you're a partner in a, you know, massively well-earning partner in a law firm, you pay less tax as a fraction of your income than if you're an employee. So there are so many ways in which just little changes in behaviour kind of change the tax that you pay. And of course, there is therefore, I mean, it's, it's, it's a modern day equivalent of the brick tax that you yeah. were talking about. You change this way and your behavior this way and how your income looks and you pay a different amount of tax. And not surprisingly, people make a lot of effort to do that. And you know, big companies, I mean, kind of incredibly complex things in order to achieve that. But you seem to explain it really well in your book. Can't can't the government just listen to your your advice? Like, <laughs> it, it seems like you make it sound really simple and like common sense. At least you can see the problems. Yeah. Maybe I not think, have the solutions. I the pro- but- well, I think I do have the solutions. The problem, and this is the this is what I was saying about being brave earlier, is that all of these solutions involve someone getting worse off because if if there's currently something which says that if you're if you declare yourself a, a company as opposed to an employee you pay less tax well, you have to increase tax i mean council tax is a is appalling tax yeah. and very regressive but if you change it people with expensive properties will pay more and they Complain, obviously. <laughs> uh, and we see that. I mean, it's, it's, uh, some time ago that George Osborne tried to you know, put VAT on um, pa- sort of hot takeaway pasties. Um, and that you know, it was a tiny change. I remember but that. Hu- I mean, hu- that sort of Damien loves his Greg. He was definitely hit by that. Even little changes are sort of really unpopular. And there are throughout the system. We know that if we really cared about sort of young people and housing and economic growth, we would loosen the planning laws, for instance. But of course, that makes people who have got you know nice houses in the countryside worse off, and, and that, they're the people who seem to have the power. So um, I, think, I think the truth is that government knows a lot of this stuff, but is scared to make the change because there are almost no changes that you can make which just make everyone better off. Most of them will make someone worse off, and they tend to shout quite loud <laughs> you spoke about um tax reforms was it the 80s or 90s that were actually sensible and the, the the government lost power as a result of them because people just don't like change in they don't like to hear that taxes are changing even if it will mm. benefit them or is good for the country yeah so I mean, there's, there's lots of examples of that. i mean i mean the, the, i mean okay this is where i'm going to lose the audience completely <laughs> so, you know, so back in the 1990s um the then government tried to put vat at its full rate on gas and electricity now at the moment there's only five there's, most things have 20% vat gas and electricity have 5% that's another way of saying that we want to get to net zero but we're actually subsidizing people using gas yeah um uh, but it, and obviously, rich people use a lot more gas than poor people. So you could put VAT on it and increase benefits for people on lower incomes and cut taxes. Exactly what the government of the day said they would do: make 
people on low incomes on average better off and people on high incomes on average worse off and stop subsidizing um, us burning gas. It was possibly, it's about the most unpopular policy ever. Didn't happen. It was one of the reasons the government became incredibly um, unpopular. And it's, that's just one example of how hard it is to change something. At the moment, um, we effectively subsidize people who spend an enormous amount of money on gas and electricity. Now, Part of the problem is, of course, I said on average you can compensate poor people, people on low incomes. You can't completely compensate all of them. So there will be some people on low incomes who got very hard to heat houses or who have a particular medical needs, which mean that they have to keep their house very warm. So we will make, we'll make some people worse off. But at the moment, uh, because we're spending so much on this, we're making lots of people worse off because we're raising taxes in other ways. It's tax to shape behaviour, which is the beard tax and things like that, everyone shaves. Actually, the use for taxes to, sh to shape behavior and push people ways. Because like you say, if you tax over here, they'll move over there. Yeah. So if you want to go to net zero, you have to tax gas usage and maybe incentivize electric on the other side. So that exactly. behavior moves that way. The one takeaway that I took from the book though is we talk about beard tax and all of that. None of them really matter. There's three taxes mm -hmm. that, that move the needle. Can you just mm -hmm. explain to us what those taxes are? Yeah, so we raise about a trillion pounds, just under a trillion pounds a year. That's a big number in yeah. tax. <laughs> uh, and about two-thirds of that nearly is just from three taxes, income tax, national insurance contributions, and VAT. The next biggest one is corporation tax. So between those, that's more pay all of those. two-thirds of the... Uh, <laughs> excellent. Well <laughs> but well, we're we very are. grateful. <laughs> you say you, you are welcome. Cheers, you are welcome. <laughs> but you would think corporation tax would be a bit higher. It's quite no, hard. It's, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> Leave it alone. <laughs> so so, um, so, so we, we get whatever it is, a 250 billion or something from income tax and getting on for 200 billion from national insurance and uh, VAT. Um, corporation tax actually going up quite a lot. Um, and by international standards, it's really quite high. Um, that surprises okay. people in terms of what we get um, in the UK, but it's still only what, less than about a fifth of what we get from um, income tax, a bit, more than a, a bit more than a fifth. So it's those three big, big ones, national insurance, which you pay on your earnings, income tax you pay on your income, VAT you, you pay when you buy stuff. Um, you know, th those are the three big ones. Income tax at the moment, people may not realize this, income tax at the moment is going up by the most it has ever gone up. Fiscal drag. Fiscal drag. So what that means is the point at which you start to pay income tax is being held at the same level in cash terms for six years when inflation is really high. So that drags more and more of your income into tax. And the point at which you start to pay higher rate tax, just over 50,000 pounds, also being held for six years. And that's doubling the number of people who are going to be higher rate taxpayers. And the point at which you start to pay 60% tax, which you do between 100 and 125,000 pounds, and 45% tax over 125,000, all of those are being held. And that's probably a 50 billion pound tax rise. Now, that's one of the biggest tax rises in history. But you don't kind of notice it because it's just holding things the same in cash terms. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, it's this point of being a higher rate taxpayer used to mean something. Now you can actually be in poverty as a higher rate taxpayer. You know, or you could you could afford not be able to afford to live and still be in the higher rates. Well, I think um, yeah. Well, again, this is one of the funny things about tax. I mean, if you are a single person with no children and small housing costs, obviously fifty thousand pounds a year, and you're really well off. Mm. If you're a sort of single earner um, with a mortgage and two or three children, £50,000 really isn't very much. Mm. Um, and of course, the tax system doesn't take account of those differences. So you'll pay the same amount of tax 
either way. It punishes people in certain circumstances. You, your book highlighted, I would like you to explain it, but if you say have three children and you're going from 50 to 60K in mm. income, you're paying, is it like 68% or something? Something like that. You're paying yeah. really high. So the reason is that your child benefit, which you get um, uh, if your income's below 50,000, is taxed away between 50,000 and 60,000 pounds. So if you've got two or three children, that's a reasonable amount of money which you gradually lose as your income goes up between 50 and 60,000. And that can take your marginal tax rate, so the amount you lose for every pound that you earn, well above 60, and, and if you've got enough children, 70%. So you're saying to us that an aging population is an issue, but we're disincentivizing people to have children in in, an, in a common income bracket. Should I mean you're probably going to just say yeah, but shouldn't we <laughs> be incentivizing people to have children then instead and not impacting that? Because they'll make financial decisions. People yeah. will say of our generation, I'm not going to have kids because it's too expensive, yeah. and that's a reflection yeah. of that, isn't it? Well, I think it is. I mean, I, mean, I think the bigger issues there are around housing costs and so on. I mean, um, yeah, and uh, if you look, I mean, 25 years ago. The large majority of middle-income people in their 30s who had children were owner-occupiers. Now, a big fraction of them are private renting. And private renting, as everyone will know, is really uh, expensive and has all sorts of other downsides. And it's definitely one of the things that uh, makes it, you know, when you make that calculus, am I going to have a kid? How many kids am I going to have? The housing costs is really important. The childcare costs are really important. Um, and you know, possibly the child benefit, but that's not, you know, that's actually quite small probably relative to your housing costs and your childcare costs. But all of those things matter. And um, you know, the number of kids that we're having is is dropping really quite fast. I mean, the it's about one point. So the way that we measure this is how many children per um, per, per woman um, in their lifetime. And you need 2.1 to just keep the population stable if you ignore immigration. Um, we're only having 1.6 at the moment, which probably is the lowest ever. And you know the only reason that the population is reasonably sort of stable at uh, working age is because we've got quite a large number of immigrants. Yeah, I mean... You've just had a kid. I'm well, not done. having any more. Nope. Congratulations. Yeah, thank You've you. got one. You I, when one. I grew up, though, I, I thought I'm going to have four. Yeah. <laughs> but I come from a big family, so I thought when I grew up, I'm like, oh, I'm gonna, I want to have twin boys. Then I want to have Twin like, boys? Four. You can't specify that. I did. I did. But I don't know why I want to go for it. <laughs> well, I've got twin boys. You <laughs> see, there you go. Shoots to kill. Shoots to kill. Put it out there. But yeah, I always thought I had like two twins and then like a couple others. So at least three or four kids. I've had one and I'm like, no, done. I'm done. You, done. Because you, it's just, it just changes your life, but it's it's, yeah. it's more expensive now to have a kid than it was yeah, well, before. Well, Not even talking about, about school yeah. fees, just like yeah. Yeah. maintenance and food and yeah. like yeah. nursery yeah. and yeah. everything. Yeah. It just costs- Try having yeah. a, yeah, yeah. Ten, 10 years old is an expensive age. Yeah, my, yeah. my son, like, you know, they don't get cheaper. I'd say yeah. when well, they're a baby. university at the moment, oh, they're blooming yeah. expensive. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, keep having kids, people. Even university used to be free. Like yeah. yeah, when we were growing up, university yeah. was, well, was, it, was well, free, the, right? the loan it doesn't cover the, yeah. yeah, it was free, and then the loan doesn't cover the cost. Yeah. Is the problem? So you know, you have to supplement your child, or they have to work, don't they? Because yeah. They, yeah. Yeah. the grant could, and the loan isn't isn't enough yeah. to even pay the accommodation. Whereas before you could just yeah, go exactly. and have have fun and party and not worry about it. Now it's yeah. like I need some money, parents. I need a loan. I'm still. I just paid off my student loan, thankfully. But yeah, it's um, it's just it's just a lot of work. not the one that you've defaulted on. It was like yeah, but now they don't charge interest. On it. Yeah, because like, yeah, okay. yeah, they stop charging interest off, you stop making the payment. When, when so you default, it was my oh, second. Yeah. It was my second degree. Yeah, oh, right. so, yeah. so I took an, a, yeah. a private yeah, loan. I'm, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm old enough not to have had to pay anything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's that lack of investment in the future. It's that short term mindset. That we're not we're not 
we're not investing in kids' educations. We charge loads for university, straddling people with debt. It all seems backwards, doesn't it, the thinking? Well, I think the big, you know, one of the things, again, I say in the book is that the biggest thing that worries me about COVID um, is, is what's happened to kids' education. Mm. I mean, a lot of kids lost a lot of education, and we know that there's um, particularly poorer kids are, are not going back to school full time in the way that they used to. So I, I think all of the rest of it will will pass. I mean, the sort of the health issues and the economic issues and so on. But the effect on that generation of young people, and particularly those from particular backgrounds who aren't going back to school properly, and the government's invested very, very, very little in in sort of dealing with that. That, I think, might be the biggest cost that we see in 10, 20 years' time. Yeah, so just the intelligence cost or the education cost. Educate, loss of education. Yeah. We know that, you know, having a good... I mean, the most important thing for any individual and for the country is that we, you know, we, we've a good education system. People get the skills and the education, the literacy and the numeracy and all those things. And if you lose that, I mean, we, we know this just from, from research. Right? You can actually see it in the data that if you don't get that education, then you'll end up worse off and the country will end up worse off. Can you guess what the biggest learning has been from doing this podcast or even my YouTube channel? It's that the most important investment you can make is in you. So for me, my path to real wealth isn't through investing, it's by building this business. And that's why I'm happy that we're working with Hostinger. Hostinger help entrepreneurs, freelancers, and side hustlers with their websites. My favorite thing is their AI website builder, which helps anyone create a professional website with zero coding experience. You just describe your goal in a couple of sentences and the AI creates a beautiful looking website, just like magic. You can then customize it, use the AI assistant to generate SEO friendly text, and even use their AI logo maker. It's fast, user-friendly, and of course, what I like the best is it's great value for money. You can get website hosting in a free domain from £2.99 a month. So if you want a website, then check out Hostinger. And if you use the code making money, that's making money all one word, you'll get 10% off. And I've left a link in the description for you. Before I became a creator, I was a sales guy. I mean, I love selling. It's how I rebuilt my life after some wrong turns in my 20s. I also delivered Chinese takeaways on the side, but that was more fun money so I could go out on a night without feeling guilty. Sales was where the real money was at. And one tool that I found really useful was LinkedIn Sales Navigator. It's a sales intelligence platform that helps you identify and then get into conversations with high value customers so you can drive more revenue. You can use it to look for key signals like recent job changes, so you can find buyers who are most likely to convert. And because they've got a billion people on the platform, I mean, the chances are your targets are going to be on LinkedIn. Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date, first-party data so you can get into conversations with the people that matter. So if you want to give Sales Navigator a try, you can get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash upsell. That's linkedin.com slash U-P-S-E-L-L for a 60-day free trial. We know that the three biggest taxes, income tax, VAT, we know that everyone's paying more at the minute. The same... Can we just tackle the, the thing that I know everyone's screaming at home is why don't we just tax the wealthy more? Yeah, so um, uh, it's, it's, it's always great, isn't it? You know, don't tax me, don't tax you, don't tax me, tax that tax man tea. behind the tree. Um, <laughs> someone else, always tax someone else. Um, tax tea, yeah, absolutely. Tax tea. <laughs> <laughs> good luck finding me. Yeah, good luck finding me. It's You're all behind the tree, aren't you? Yeah. Like, with all my crypto in yeah. behind the tree, deciding like, don't tax me, please. <laughs> well, we can do a bit more of that, but I think some things it's really worth keeping in mind. 
Because if you look at income tax, one um, percent of people pay thirty percent of income tax already. So we're getting a lot of tax from people on high incomes. That's partly because their incomes are pretty high, um, but we get a lot, and and we get more actually than most European countries from the people at the top. Again, partly because people at the top are quite well off. One um, percent. We're talking about incomes over one hundred sixty thousand or something before tax. That's the top one percent. The top 0.1%, they've got incomes over about 650,000. There's about 50,000 people in that group. They're paying, um, just 0.1% are paying about 6 or 7% of all income tax. So about 60. You mean taxable income, so like taxable a wage, income. basically, yeah, or, or a salary? Or, or, or income from self-employment or whatever. Okay, yeah. So, yeah, okay, so that's, that's, that's a huge number. I mean, yeah. you know, there's not very many people earn that amount of money, but they pay an awful lot of tax. Although one of the things that, you know, is frustrating in a sense is that they're much more likely to get their money from sources which are less highly taxed. So they're more likely to be self-employed, or they're more likely to be company owner managers, or what have you. And they get they pay less tax than you know wage slaves like me um, who just pay income tax and national insurance. Second thing about that group is that about a third of them were born abroad. So you, you know, I never used to think this was a real issue, but but we now a third. So so they could leave. And that would be expensive for us. So, so that's that's the first thing we get they a lot from here, people on high income. They could go. Yeah. I mean, if we do, yeah. I mean, there's lots of things we could do to chase them away, like leaving the European Union or what have you. But, uh, <laughs> um, uh, that's uh, in terms of wealth. So that's income. So that's people on high incomes. We get a lot from them, but uh, and we probably get a bit more, but not enough to move the dial. Um, in terms of wealth, I think that's where we could look. So um, wealth has become much more important relative to income over the last. 20 or 30 years, house prices have gone up, asset values have gone up, an older generation is sitting on quite a lot of wealth. And wealth is much more unequally distributed than, than income. Um, and we don't have a sort of specific wealth tax. But more importantly, we don't, the wealth taxes we do have work really badly. So inheritance tax, for example, doesn't raise very much money, partly because if you're really rich, it's really easy to avoid it. A trust or whatever. Uh, a trust or, or just, you know, just buy um shares in the in, in the aim market in the in the yeah. sort of um, small or farmland market, or, or farmland yeah. um any of those things and so i've got a little quote in there from this great tax lawyer called dan needle he says you know you go to your you go, go to your advisor how do i reduce my inheritance tax and you expect a kind of you know 30 page thing and you just come back saying sell the assets you've got buy some shares on the aim market live two years that's it don't no inheritance tax. Um, and so the result is that the average level of inheritance tax on a £2 million inheritance is double what it is on a £10 million inheritance. And if, you're, and if you've got billions, you pay almost none. Uh, so you can do a lot to fix that. A bit. Council tax, you, Council you highlighted tax. as a wealth tax. And this was the first time I'd thought about it but can you just explain that so, please? So council tax is a tax based on the value of your property that you live in but the value as it was in 1991, so more than 30 years ago. And the amount that you pay is a higher fraction of that value, the lower the value of your house. So if you've got a really um, cheap house, mostly in the north of England, you pay three times as much as a fraction of the value of your property as if you're in a quite expensive house in London, say. And because there's a cap on the amount you pay, if you're in a 10, 100 million pound mansion, you pay the same as someone who's in a sort of standard, or in London at least, standard million pound um, house. That didn't used to be the case. Under the old rate system, there was no cap on it. And you had sort of the amount directly related to the value 
of the property. So I think this is the only tax we've got, which I think is deliberately regressive in the sense that the wealthier, wealthier you are, um, the less you pay as a fraction of your wealth. And it's and it could be a genuine, easily enforceable wealth tax because one thing about wealth, like to to you know argue the other side. Someone like Elon Musk hasn't got billions in the bank. It's tied up in stock value. So, you know, if you're saying, oh, I want 10% of your wealth, what does he do? Does he dump 10% of Tesla stock on the open market? Well, I mean, he lost 10, more than 10% buying Twitter, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. X. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah he, he does a good job of burning his own cash. I mean, I say that, the guy's worth a lot of money, so he does a good job of earning it. But but with council tax, it's, it's like, oh, you're living in a 15 million pound house. You've got to pay, you know, a hundred thousand pound a year to live in it. That, that seems quite fair. It's crazy that... I pay more council tax than some people who live in Mayfair, you know, living yeah. up north in where I live. Yeah, yeah, it's it, it's um, yeah, I mean, the, the, it's completely crackers, and there are actually still still places where the council tax, in cash terms today, is less than the rates were, which is what preceded council tax um, thirty five years ago. And so, if you're on a really expensive you know place in central London, you're paying I don't know two or three thousand pounds a year. Um, actually, the US, which is hardly you know the hotbed of socialism, most most areas in the US have property taxes, which are much much bigger than that on really expensive properties. You use an example: was it Hartlepool, where the person pays like one or two percent yeah, of the value exactly. of their home every year? Yeah, and in Westminster, it's zero point one percent. So it's you know it's, it's a ten. It, impacts 10 times heavier on Hartlepool than it does on Westminster. That's madness. That's wild. It? Are there any other taxes like that where you think this could be an easy fix? Or Well, so capital gains tax. Um, again, it doesn't raise huge amounts, but it, it raises a significant amount. It's a tax as you'd want. So if you, if you buy something and it becomes more valuable and then you sell it, then you pay some tax on that gain. Um, actually, historically... It, it, that was one of the reasons 20 years ago when Gordon Brown unaccountably really cut capital gains tax, um, people in private equity were able to pay um, sort of 10% tax, whereas the you know, other people were paying 40% tax. And they were able to claim, I mean, this was in the press at the time, I pay a lower rate of tax than my cleaner. And this is kind of you know, multi-millionaires. Um, uh, that's not quite as bad as that anymore. But um, there's only a 10% capital gains tax on um, business disposal, um, uh, up to a million pounds. That benefits a small number of very wealthy people. And if you hold on to something until you die, there's no capital gains tax at all. And that does mean that a lot of people who would you know, probably benefit from selling their second home or their shares or what have you, just hold on to them to avoid mm. the tax. And then when it's passed on, there's no tax. That, that's both unfair and actually economically inefficient as well. You, you had a um, good analysis of corporation tax. You said like companies like Amazon or like Apple, they they might have their like R&D in America and then they build yep. everything in like China, yep. but then they sell the like iPhone in London. Yep. But because you can't really say it's a tax on the profit they make, right? So you yep. can't really say where the profits actualize. Yep. But you said that instead of taxing, so a lot of companies will choose, oh, we'll pay the tax in Ireland or yep. somewhere where it's cheaper. Do you think it would just make more sense if everyone just said, okay, you're gonna if you sell in England, you have to pay tax in England. If you sell, would that work, or do you think all the corporations would be like, no, we want to keep paying <laughs> naturally. We want to keep paying our tax in Ireland or Singapore, wherever it's cheaper, where we make the product. I think in the long run, a move in that direction would, you know, is probably the way to go. I mean, the problem is exactly as you describe it. Corporation tax is supposed to be a tax on profits. But when you're looking at Apple or Amazon, where, where is the profit made? 
Um, uh, and you know the corporation tax system is an international system, and it was sort of still based on rules made in the 1920s, so 100 years ago, when that wasn't so hard. I mean, you, know, you didn't have uh, internet companies and uh, these incredibly complex supply mm. chains. So it's exactly right, and, and you know, there is, that's why you know lawyers and accountants and international sort of um, bodies, you know, there are tens of hundreds of thousands of people making a lot of money out of determining where. Profits are made, and, and there's no there's no correct answer to where the profit is made. And as you, as you say, is it is it just because of the R and D? Is it where it's sold? Is it where it's made? Um, so you, you could sweep all of that away and say, look, actually, we're just going to tax you according to where the sales are because we can see where the sales yeah. are. Um, of course, that needs some international agreement, and of course, some companies countries would win and some countries would lose. And that's why that's quite hard so to achieve. It, has, it hasn't been reformed <laughs> since 1920. Hasn't been well, updated. It, it's been up. I mean, there, there's been lots of effort into sort of fixing the holes and updating it and making it more and more and more complex. Um, but the base, the basis of it, is still the same. Yeah, because America's incentivized to keep the system as it is uh, because they benefit these massive corporations. A lot of them are American, aren't they? And they're the, selling yeah, the biggest ones are. Yeah, and, and so there are there are some reforms going ahead, and um, and, and the Americans essentially. Um, are saying if we can, if everyone in the world will at least ensure there's a 15% minimum corporation tax rate, then we will allow you to tax a little bit more of some of these American companies' profits in in your own country. So that's the sort of quid pro quo. They want to make sure you know that they get rid of the sort of more egregious um, sort of tax havens. Uh, and if you do that, then some countries can 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 charge a little bit more tax. But this is, you know, this has been they've been negotiating this for ten years, and it's still not in place. So this leads me on to a, another question I'd like to ask you. You're talking about, you know, agreements internationally, which kind of makes me think about policing of of the tax system as mm -hmm. well. In the sense of, I, another YouTuber friend of mine has just had the tax man all over him, and there was a, a month long discussion about a coffee maker, but then the government have recently said about furlough and all the fraud that exists mm. around there. We're just going to wipe that. Mm. How, do you, how, do the, how do you view the policing of the tax system and do you see that as fair? Um, so that's a really complicated um, area. I mean, it's extraordinary, isn't it, that, that thing about the furlough? So through, through COVID, the government spent vast amounts of money, hun I mean, hundreds of billions of pounds, I mean, like in a way that's never happened before. And actually... The British government spent more than most other governments, and Rishi Sunak, when he was Chancellor, seemed to be very proud of that. Obviously, we needed to spend a lot, but it's pretty clear in some ways we spent too much. So, furlough went on for longer than it should have done. For example, we wasted a lot of money on PPE, personal protective equipment, for example. Uh, but the fraud mostly appeared to have occurred where loans were made to businesses, things called bounce-back loans. They're made through the banks, but the government told the banks, look, essentially lend to whoever you want and we'll pay you back. Um, and quite a lot of people got rich off the back of that. Quite a lot of that, um, billions and billions, um, is you know, government admits was fraud uh, and appears to have effectively given up on trying to get it back. And actually, they were warned at the time about some of these um, some of these loans that they were were, were giving. But that's that's by the by. Um, uh, I mean, I think if you have got a tax system, you need to police it. And again, one of the things I quote in there was one. I think one of the you know, one of the many mad things that um, Quasi Quarting did when he was Chancellor was to essentially say we're going to stop policing 
the um, you know, whether it's self-employment income or whether it's um, earned income. And the Treasury That's the IR35. IR35, exactly. And the Treasury said, well, that'll cost you $2 billion a year. And that was the Treasury's estimate. Simply, but if you've got a tax... I mean, I mean, the answer really is to tax everyone the same and you wouldn't need all these rules. But if you've got these rules, then you need to... Then you need to police it. Yeah. So I you know, we were speaking off camera before, and I told you that I worked in accountancy, and I actually worked for contractor-based accountancy. So I oversaw the transition of IR35. I saw it get undone. I saw it transition again, <laughs> and then I seen them threaten to undo it. And just to give people context on on what that was, it's a perfect example as well of you saying before that people get hurt and they don't like it, but. People, we would have cleaners who are contractors or doctors mm. working in the NHS, working through a limited company mm. and not paying high levels of tax, maybe 10%, but then a full-time member of staff mm. next to them mm. doing the exact same job was paying 30, 40%, mm. whatever. Mm. So the, the IR35 rules try to close that loophole where people who were just employees were contractors working through limited companies. It was really unfair because what was the incentive to yeah. be full-time employed yeah. when yeah. you could just- yeah. Yeah, and this is why people like Gary Lineker have spent years in the courts fighting yeah. with HMRC about whether they were you know, an employee of the BBC or whether they were um, doing it through their own company. And I, th I think he's recently won that case. But I mean, it's uh, you know, the, the, for, for people like that, there's lots of money um, at stake, and you know, it's just a kind of s small legal technicality. Uh, depends on that whether you're paying millions more tax or not. Yeah. They, like, you can see immediately that that's a crackers tax system. Yeah. Yeah. So I still think it's a hard message to swallow in terms of we're all going to pay more tax or we all need to pay more tax. Do you have a, a positive way of, of reassuring people that that's a good thing or that, well, it, that it's going to be okay? <laughs> well, well, look, we all want to pay less tax, don't yeah. we? I mean, I, you know, I'd much rather pay less tax than, uh, than more tax. I, mean, I, mean, I suppose one answer is you go to... Um, places like Denmark where they've got much higher taxes than us and on average they're pretty happy about that because that does seem to pay for sort of social equity and um, you know good public services and so on uh, I think oh you know the problem here is exactly as you were saying earlier on is that these high tax levels seem to pay for pretty rubbish public services yeah. um, uh, at the moment and whilst that continues then I think people are going to continue to be a bit unhappy also when it just looks unfair I mean we've talked about how you know super rich people tend to avoid inheritance tax you can use capital gains tax to avoid income tax you can uh, you know, partners in law firms pay less tax than um, uh, than, than employees so I think part of the answer is if you're going to have more tax, it's even more important to sort of tidy up the tax that system so that it, it's fair and it works efficiently and it's not too complex and all of those sorts of things. I mean, all those things matter anyway, but the more the more that you rely on tax, the more that it's going to matter for economic growth as well as people feeling that it's fair. Speaking of growth, can how, how does growth in the UK impact this taxation point? And, you know, is growth an answer? Well, we certainly need growth. So, um, so one of the reasons that we're in the position we are at the moment is that income, incomes, and growth have been so poor over the last fifteen years. I mean, one of the, one of the extraordinary things is if you look at earnings growth, the last fifteen years have probably been the worst fifteen years since Napoleon. I mean, going back to when we, you know, income taxes first. So, literally, the worst fifteen years for two hundred years in terms of. Um, earnings and income growth, which is just extraordinary. And of course, if they're not growing, then tax revenues aren't coming in. And the less money we have as a country, the less money we've got to spend on health and education and so on and so on. Um, so more growth would 
matters in all sorts of ways. It's also one of the reasons why we've got this sort of intergenerational inequity that um, uh, sort of older people who owned their houses 15 years ago have done so much better than younger people because you know, very low interest rates, which reflects the very poor growth, and um, earnings haven't gone up. So all of those things matter. So going forward, um, economic growth is important for us feeling better about the world, but also in order to be able to pay more tax for the better public services. And actually, if you've got for the, the, the same tax as a fraction of national income buys you more if there's more national income. Yeah. Yeah, so like you point to Scandinavian countries and they earn a lot more on, per capita or by on average than say we do, don't they as well? So yeah, so they've got so they've got lots more, more to spend on their public tax, services yeah. now. It's I mean, obviously, if you've got more income as a country, you I mean, you have to pay your doctors and nurses and teachers and policemen and so on more because you can't have them falling further and further behind. So it's not it's not all a win in terms of um, you know, things just get easier, uh, but it obviously helps. So. How do we grow? One a phrase I use in there is there's a dirty little secret in Whitehall, which is that they know how to do it and don't do it. Um, so we, we know how to get growth in the long run. And that's a political problem because it, you can't do stuff today which will make a difference in a year's time to, the, to growth in a way that's sustainable. But you can do stuff over the next three years, which will make a big difference in 10 years. So there's a, you know, that, that's the political problem because politicians don't tend to have that sort of um, time span. But what are the things we could do that we know would be good for growth? Uh, well, one is um, reform the planning system so we can actually build houses where they're needed and build roads where they're needed and so on. Um, and you know, governments have continually bottled out of that the last time. Infrastructure investment. Well, that's so, a, HS2. A, so infrastructure investment as well. I'm not so sure about HS2, but we can come back to that. Southerners. <laughs> we, we <don't> Southerners. <laughs> you, you get on that train, that, that Valley West Coast train, be sat next to the toilet and tell me we don't need more capacity on that line. Well, capacity perhaps, or yeah. whether HS2 is the best way yeah. of doing it. Yeah. yeah, my kids are at University of Manchester, so I'm on that train quite a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I, went, I went there. It's, 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 so you end up standing on a Sunday, you stand there with like no seats. Oh, if you well, that's the best bit of the train. And then, then go, you know, regional in, you know, go oh, to go, go yeah, to like, yeah. you know, Barrow and Finesse. But, that, but that's why, you, anyway, that's, uh, yeah, that's why you need to, you definitely need infrastructure across yeah. the north and across the Midlands. So, yeah, so one of the things outside of London, our cities are much worse um, served by transport than in Europe. So European cities have much better public transport. And American cities then have much better roads, and we're we're stuck. So that means that Birmingham, Manchester, and so on, effectively, they're serving a much smaller labour market than they could because people can't get in to work. So that's one thing that really matters: planning, infrastructure investment, and we cut spending on investment dramatically in the early 2010s, and we're paying the costs of that. Education we know really matters um, for growth, particularly, and this is a real sort of bugbear of mine. Six, people between 16 and 21 who aren't doing A-levels and going to university, which is about half. Um, we've, we've really cut spending on that. We, the policy has been totally change, changing all of the time. And our 15-year-olds our actually compare quite well internationally. Our 21-year-olds are disastrous internationally. And that's telling you something really serious about what's going wrong between 16 and 21, particularly for people doing vocational so higher education. education and apprenticeships, is that is that what you mean? Further education and apprenticeships, yeah. yeah. We, we have very few people doing higher level apprenticeships. So lots of people do degrees and lots of people sort of stop at sort of GCSE or A-level. Almost nobody does stuff in between. Um, actually, one of my sons did a sort of higher level apprenticeship doing really well. And we know that there are 
big gaps in skills at exactly those levels. So that that will be good for, for growth. We know that. We've talked about reforming the tax system in ways that would be good for growth. We know that will be, uh, we, we know that's um, important. And there's all sorts of things we need to do with, you know, trade with Europe. I mean, we know that making trade more expensive with our biggest, nearest and richest trading partner is bad for growth. So the closer we can get to the single market, the customs union, the better. Uh, and then there's lots of issues around competition law and regulation uh, and, and just getting all of those right. So, so we, we, we kind of know the broad outline of things that we need to do to get growth going. But each one of those things is either expensive or it's bad for people who've already got houses somewhere um, or, or you know, it's a bit difficult when it comes to education or it uh, makes some people worse off when it comes to tax and so there are always trade-offs and if there's one um, if there's one theme of my book it's they're always trade-offs um, that there are not very many things you can do there's which no makes easy everyone better yeah. off uh, but my view is that we've made the wrong trade-offs for a long period of time which is why partly why we're in the position we're in do you think brexit made this a lot worse or not, not in the grand scheme of things. It certainly, really. it certainly had an effect. Um, so we're probably three or four percent worse off than if we hadn't, or w will be, than if we hadn't gone through Brexit. Now, that is a decision you can make. I mean, we're a rich country, despite everything we've just been saying. And if you, you know, and then there are, you know, does mean it genuinely means we can control our immigration, for example, in a way that we couldn't within uh, within the European Union. So that, again, there are trade offs. There are arguably benefits. But there are costs, and the costs are economic ones, because we can see that our trade intensity has fallen a lot, and we could see immediately after the referendum that investment fell off. So, so we know that there are economic costs, and you have to weigh those against any political benefits that you might see from it. And one of the huge frustrations of referendums, both that one and the Scottish one, actually, is that both sides made out that everything will be best on one, but there are just all, sorry, just go on about it. There are always trade-offs. No nuance to the debate. It's no. like, it's all good over here. Or it's exactly, all good over exactly. There. Do you have much confidence that the political system will, you know, make the changes that we need for growth? Or can they, because people are not brave, like you said? Well, I think, I think it is possible. We have seen over history changes that have been made. I mean, there have been good changes to the tax system over time. We have had reforms to you know, taxation of mortgages, to um, capital gains and so on um, over time. We have had some efforts to change planning. We have had periods. And actually, now is a period when investment spending is, is quite high. So, so there are things that people have done. I think what you need and what, you know, what one of the problems is we're, we're doing this in 2023 and, and for the certainly between 2016 and 2022 there was just no space I mean you talk to a cabinet ministers at the time for, for four years after the 2016 Brexit vote no one thought about anything on the Brexit in government you couldn't do anything um, and then we have the chaos of COVID and we've had sort of you know Johnson and Corbyn and all this kind of stuff it does feel to me like we're we're getting despite all of the we're speaking on the day that you know we're having a reshuffle and Suella Bravo has just been sacked and so on so you get all there's lots of excitement in politics but Despite all of that, it does feel to me like we're we're, we're returning to a sort of more stable world. Um, you know, it only took five six years, <laughs> or however long it's been. Um, and actually, one of the things that is absolutely necessary for economic success and growth is to have stable politics. So when you've got, you know, whatever we had four chancellors in a few months and three prime ministers, and um, and actually also when you've got. Um, Prime Minister saying, you know, fuck business and um, uh, are trying to undermine the Bank of England and all of those kinds of things. That might might feel it's fun from an economic, from a political point of view. That is economically 
damaging. So actually having stable politics is it's not enough, but it's absolutely necessary for having economic growth. And hopefully we'll return to a period of more stable politics. So just to summarize everything you've said there, there are big challenges that the country face. And I think they're important challenges that everyone acknowledges we need to address, aging population and climate change. In order to do that, it's going to cost money and we will need to pay more taxes. The main levers for tax are really the three big ones and everything else like inheritance tax and that, we can tweak it and move it to make the system fairer, but they're not going to, they're not going to pull the levers like we need the big three. And really your book says that if we're going to fix these issues long-term that we probably will all pay more tax over the next 10 years. Do you yeah. think that's fair? Yeah, and, and we, we can do better with all the spending that we're doing. We do yeah. better with the education spending, especially. Um, but also, we need to get the economy growing. And there are things that we can do to do that. Um, but actually, that's going to take not just politicians to be brave. That's also going to take us to be brave and actually accept that if you're going to make big choices that we made to make in the long run, let me say it again, there are trade-offs yeah. um, and, and none of this is uh, is straightforward. I don't want to speak on behalf of the nation, but I think people could probably get behind the idea of paying a bit more tax as long as the system is fairer and pe- we close off the silly loopholes yeah. which penalise people for having more kids and stuff and we aggressively go after fraud and we tax businesses more and we make sure that the wealthy, the, the 0.1% pay their share, then maybe we could all pitch in and get tea on that as well. Chance of the Exchequer tea. (laughs) Your book is fantastic. You're even better in person. Honestly, I've loved this chat. Um, I'd encourage everyone to get a copy of the book or or the audio book. And if there's one key takeaway from it as well is if you're going to get a pet, get a rabbit because you can eat it. So there's no VAT on it. Absolutely. (laughs) Bunnies on a bagel, mate. Once once Floppy pops his clogs, you just spread them on a bagel. (laughs) Bugs bunny for lunch. Let's go. Yeah, that's what I took away from it. (laughs) If you missed anything in that episode, don't worry. We do a really good summary of everything that's gone on and what we discussed in our newsletter. You can sign up using the link in the description. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. It really makes a difference and lets us know what we're doing right. We're taking a break over Christmas, but we'll put out some special festive treats for you. So keep your eyes peeled for those. We're going to be back on January the 1st to bring in the new year with our full-length episodes. I'm Damo. I'm T. The episode was recorded by Jack Hobbs. It was produced and edited by Ruth Edwards. Johnny Hunter is in charge of all our marketing, and it's all brought together by Will Stollerman. Quick question for me and the Making Money team. Would you like us to come into your workplace to teach you and your colleagues more about personal finance? It's an absolute joke that we're not taught what to do with money. And this knowledge gap makes most people much poorer over their lifetimes. Take your work-based pension. Most people have no idea what the fund they're invested in does. And plenty of people just opt out altogether. We can cover whatever is most important, from the basics to complex financial retirement planning supported by qualified financial advisors who are not there to sell you anything. We take different approaches for different people in a company depending on stuff like their age or their income. If you think people you work with could benefit from financial education, then please email will at getmost.co.uk. It doesn't matter what your role is in the business, we want to hear from you. So email will at getmost.co.uk. And I've left a link in the description for you. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. 
who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app.